Alrighty. We have due this week a homework number two, which is due on Friday, as well as your first set of solar observations. Again, just, just the numbers, anything you have, I'll take a look at those this weekend and give you, back, give you them back with comments on Monday. Again, you can submit either of those here in class on Friday or you can submit them to the Dropbox on D2L. There's a Dropbox for homeworks. There's a separate Dropbox for solar observations. You can put those there. Quiz 2 will also be up and available starting on Friday through the weekend through Monday. First article review is due the following week as well as the iTunes, first iTunes quiz. I did make a slight change to that in that it is not the picture. I, I cut the pictures off at the 14th which is Friday. So I will stop pictures as of that date. That way my online classes are going to be taking an iTunes quiz and I don't have to make up, have different limits for them. I can cut them all both, all off the same day. So makes it a little bit more convenient that way for me. And that's what's, that's what's coming up. So question? Yeah. Is the iTunes quiz for everybody? The iTunes quiz is for everyone, yes. Yeah. There are there will be at least three iTunes quizzes, probably four, and I end up dropping your lowest two quiz grades. If I do three, I drop your lowest quiz grade. If I end up with two, with four of them, then I'll end up dropping your two lowest quiz grades. So if you miss one of the quizzes completely, that gives you a chance to have it, to make it up completely. They'll count in your grade up until then. And actually, if you go on D2L right now and click on your grades, it'll give you a current grade percentage. And it will tell you you have, you know, we've had 100 points or so, so far, or 120 points. It'll tell you you have 115 out of 120 or 83 out of 120 and give you a percentage. And that will update as I grade each item and put it in the grade book. That'll update for you as you go through the semester. So you'll know exactly where you're, you know exactly where you're standing if you want to go and look at those. Heather, right? Yes. Heather? Okay. That's okay. I'm trying to make sure I give you the right one. All right. The other thing I had to have it. Slight change here. I've had to change my Wednesday office hours. I have a meeting now that's going to be scheduled apparently at 10 or 10.30 on at least every other Wednesday. So to make it consistent, instead of office hours right after class, which I usually like to do because it's convenient, I'll extend it to, and do it for instead of doing just 1 to 2, I'll be doing 12 to 2 on Wednesday afternoons. I'll be here that time. Some Wednesdays I will be here. This one I have to be over in Stabler at 10 o'clock. So I'll be running right after. I'll be rushing right after class this time. So I did switch that. I've marked that on my door and I'll mark it on the other boards as well. But just if you need to see me specifically on a Wednesday, some of them I'll be available right after class because I don't have a meeting. Like next week I should be good. But this week I've got two hours worth of meetings. So instead of that, I'm not getting rid of an hour. I'm just switching it to 12, 12 to 1. All right, and then the exam. Let me do the exam first. Overall, the grades were not too bad on it. There was, it was a 77% was the average, or 38.6 out of 50, which is a little bit, maybe a little bit lower than I'd like, but right, right about in a, typical, in a typical range. So not too bad overall. Some people did do quite well. There were you know, 49s and 50s on it. There were also rather some poorer scores on it. And as I think I mentioned last time, don't let just a poor score throw you. There are um, plenty of ways to get points in this class. So it's not just dependent on you know, exams and a final as some classes do. There's enough between homeworks, 
article reviews, quizzes, and everything else that adds up that counts for a lot of the points too. And you can do poorly on an exam or two and still be able to do quite well in the class. Even if you did do poorly, don't get frustrated and throw it away or shred it. Keep it. Because when I do the final exam, your final exam is in two parts. There's a part that's comprehensive that covers everything we covered on the first four exams. I use these to make it up. So keep these, use these to study the first part of the course, the first three quarters of the course when you take the final. You don't need to go back and listen to chapter one lecture again or review chapter one in the textbook. All you have to look at for the first couple chapters is what's on here. If you know this, you're fine. I don't guarantee they'll be exactly the same questions. Some of them will be. Some I'll copy off word for word. Some I might change. You know, but if you know the general idea of it, you're, really, you're on track if you have these to study, plus the new material that's come up since the exam. And then what I'll do is I'll go over the questions that a big uh, part of the class missed. And you can go over others. If you want to sit down and come by office hours, I'll be more than happy to give you the, you know, go over the rest of them, give you the answers and the answers to them. The first one on here, there were a couple on the first page that gave a little bit of trouble, was number five. Number five, yes, is one of those trick ones that if you're not reading it carefully, it's very easy to get it wrong. I try, I do put a few of them on there just to make sure you're reading the questions. I try not to do overwhelm with tricky questions. But number five said that Kepler's third law allows us to find the average distance to a, pl average distance to a planet from observing its period of rotation on its axis. It's not the period of rotation on its axis, that's one day. It's how long it takes to go around. It's the period of revolution. That is what you can determine, what Kepler's third law relates. So that one, I, I admit that one was a tricky one. And let's see, we had 20, about 3 quarters of the class missed it. So few people did get, get, get it right. But that was, that was meant to be one, making sure you're reading and understanding everything on what Kepler's third law is telling you. Other than that, the true-false is people, did, people missed a couple here or there, but overall people did pretty well in the true-falses. Multiple choices gave a little bit more trouble. There's a few multiple choices that, one, two, three, four, five, six, now seven of the multiple choices? About half of the multiple choices, I guess, gave trouble. So that, that's where the hardest part was on the exam, I'm guessing. The first one that gave trouble was the first one which is asking about the parallax of the stars. And you have a star with a parallax of 2 arc seconds, 2.34, and another star with a parallax of 1.7 arc seconds. The only thing that you can conclude from that, or what you can conclude, is that is what the distances are. The parallax tells you the distance. The largest, larger the parallax, the closer the star is to us. So Wolf 11061 has a larger parallax than Ross 652, so it must be closer. So A is the only thing that you could determine from that. You couldn't determine anything about any other kinds of motions or you know, what's, what is outside the Milky Way galaxy. The only thing you could determine is which star is closer to the Earth. And it would be the one with the larger, the larger shift is the larger parallax is the closer star. Now on the next side, number 17. How much stronger is the pull of the, of the sun on the Earth at one astronomical unit than at Saturn at 10 astronomical units? That's that inverse square law for gravity. So it depends not on the distance. If you're 10 times further away, the force doesn't go down by a factor of 10. It goes down by 10 squared, 10 times 10, or 100 times. So again, number 17 should have been A, that it was 100 times stronger 
gravitational pull. So the sun pulls on the Earth 100 times stronger than it does on Saturn. All right. Number 18, according to Copernicus, retrograde motion of Mars occurs at, again, answer A, when the Earth overtakes Mars and passes between Mars and the Sun. So the Earth is passing Mars in its orbit. That's when Mars appears to go backwards or retrograde from the view of the Earth. So that should have been answer A as well. Question 20. If a wave's frequency doubles, what happens to the wavelength? If the frequency doubles, you're going to a higher frequency, you're going to go to a lower wavelength. And this is not an inverse square law, this is a direct relation, so it's just going to be half. So if the frequency doubles, the wavelength is going to be half. So higher frequency, higher energy, shorter wavelength, and it'll be half that. So number 20 should have been E. Number 21, the two forms of electromagnetic radiation that experience the least atmospheric opacity. That means that there's the, the atmosphere is the clearest to them, the ones that get through the atmosphere. So the ones that actually can get through the atmosphere are visible light, we can see visible light, and radio waves. Those are the two that get through. So again, question answer 21 should be answer A as well. 22 was a question on the Stefan Boltzmann law that we did we went over which told us about the total energy radiated by a black body radiator and that depends not only not on the temperature or the cube or the square of the temperature or the cube of the temperature but the fourth power of the temperature so that should be answer B so if it's two times the temperature it's not twice the brightness it's not four times the brightness it's 16 times the brightness the, the, temp, the total energy is very close, very strongly related to that, to the temperature. And the last one, number 23, last one of these that, we're do, that I'm doing, was that the jar filled with gas is placed directly in front of a second jar filled with the gas. If you look at one and you observe dark spectral lines, that means you're getting a continuous source and you have something in front of it with a lower, at a, a cooler gas, something that's cooler at a lower pressure than the star behind it, than the gas behind it, in order to see those dark lines. So the jar in front of you would contain the cooler gas, or answer B. Questions on the multiple choice? No? no? Okay. On the short answer, there were, most of the couple of them went real well, a couple of them were off. Number 25 was one. The, the me measure on the sky that compares to latitude on the Earth is the declination. So declination tells you where you, where you are on the sky. And <coughs> number 30, the featureless spectrum, that's the continuous spectrum. So when you see all the colors of the rainbow with nothing taken off, you could see a continuous or absorption or an emission spectrum. The one that you see, if you see all the colors, is a continuous spectrum. Question? Yeah. 28. 28. That was the one that, well, good chunk of the class did miss that one too. Ptolemy and Copernicus assumed all the orbits were circular. 
They were all circles until then. Kepler's first law says that the orbits are ellipses. But before that time, all the orbits were circular. Or thought to be circular. They didn't change, they always were circular. Um, on the essays, I didn't give any, I gave specific comments on them there, so I'll let you look at those. And if you have specific questions, you can of course see me about those, but I'm not going to go over those in, in any more detail. I don't remember any that were specifically bad or specifically, you know, that everybody did really poorly on or it did, did unusually poor on. Questions? Again, keep them. If you don't have all the answers, look up the other ones. Come see me if you need to get one or someone else who got the right answer on it so that you know them for the final. And do keep these because you will need those four to study. You will want those four to study for the final. No? No? All right. Then I have, I have a picture of the day, which I'll be going to in a second, but I was going to sh- have to show this video too, which... One of you mentioned to me early on, I meant to show this to my other planetary astronomy class when I saw this last night, and I completely forgot about it until someone told me here, so at least this class gets to see this. This was taken, is it yesterday? I think it was on the 10th. It says September 11th there, but I believe this was taken on the 10th. And this is actually a comet impact on Jupiter that was taken by an amateur astronomer. So it's a very short video, it's only about four seconds long. But as you'll watch, you'll be able to see Jupiter there and you'll watch to the left you can actually see you missed it there already you can see if you watch towards the left hand side you can actually see the brightness of the impact when the, when the comet strikes into Jupiter you can see where it strikes the surface there you see that one more time right there you can see the brightness where the, where the comet actually impacted into Jupiter so that was one that was actually caught by an amateur astronomer who happened to be you know, observing Jupiter and recording it and got the images for us. Um, amateur astronomers do a lot of work in astronomy in terms of observing not only things like the planets and getting information like this, but observing things like variable stars. I mean, stuff that astronomers just don't have the time with all the stars that are out there do not have the time. You know, there's only five, 6,000 professional astronomers in the world. I mean, and so, and so and many fewer professional telescopes in order to be able to observe all of this. So a lot of the work is actually done by amateurs who do it for, you know, as a hobby, for fun. They enjoy watching the st- seeing the planets, seeing the stars, watching the variable stars, and actually give a lot of very good information and data based on, you know, simply based on doing their own, uh, doing their own observations. So not done with a professional telescope. I don't know if he tells us how big it. He didn't say any of his other information about his telescope on this one, but... You know, probably a decent sized telescope. Some of the amateurs get some telescopes that are, you know, good sized mirrors. Not, not as professional astronomers get up to telescopes, as we'll talk about in a little bit, that, you know, can be the size of this room. You know, the mirror in the telescope could be the size of this room. Uh, amateurs don't get quite that big, but they can get things that are, you know, many inches across, feet across. They get some very, very large telescopes and can do some very good work and do some important work that. Astronomers just simply do not have the time to monitor every star every day. So you'll find things like a lot of comets are discovered by amateurs who search the sky looking for comets. You know, professional astronomer doesn't have time to turn the Hubble Space Telescope searching for comets. There's other things that it's looking at that will be more productive for its, for its uses. But a lot of the comets are found. A lot of asteroids are identified by amateur astronomers searching there for those. And a lot of other, a lot of other 
um, objects. Supernovae can be found by an amateur astronomer looking at a galaxy can see it. So it's not always something that's discovered by a professional astronomer. Sometimes they'll, they'll go look at them afterwards, but they don't always catch everything because they're not, can't look at everything every day as you can when you have many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of amateurs looking at the same things. So I thought that was interesting and I wanted to show you that. Yeah, Mike. Yes. Yes, it would have. Yes. And I don't know the numbers, but I know the numbers they gave for the one that impacted back in 94 was, you know, many times, you know, I mean, not, not just a single nuclear warhead, but multiple tens and hundreds of nuclear warheads hitting. I'm guessing just based on, I'm, all I'm doing is looking at the picture and I'm saying probably it was. To be that visible, that bright, I'm going to say it would have been pretty, you know, you wouldn't have wanted that hitting any place near you. You know, even if it were to hit in the middle of the ocean, well, you've got a nice tsunami coming then because the large impact there is going to be, be devastating. So yes, it, w- it would have been a pretty, pretty massive impact. Other questions? All right. Our actual picture of the day is actually an open star cluster in Scorpius. Of course, who knows, they might come back on Friday and we might get that video for our picture of the day. Who knows? An open star cluster and you see a number of stars here. Actually, you see millions of stars in this image. The ones you're looking at tend to be these brighter blue ones that are scattered around the central portion of the image. And that's what we call an open star cluster. An open star cluster is open because it means it's not gravitationally bound together. So if we were to come back in 100 million years and look at this star cluster again, we wouldn't be seeing anything. It would be gone. These stars would disperse out into space. There's not enough mass in this cluster to hold it together gravitationally. The way the solar system is held together, you know, come back in a billion years, the planets are still going to be orbiting around the sun just like they are today. Whether we'll be here or not is a good question, but the the planets will still be here orbiting around the sun just fine. If you look at a galaxy and go back and look at a galaxy in a billion years, it's still going to be there. The stars are still going to be orbiting around the center of the galaxy. There's enough gravity there to keep them bound together. In an open cluster, they're not. These stars form together and they've slowly been dispersing out into space and they will continue to do so. So that means they're relatively young stars that you see in them. That's why they all tend to be very blue. Blue stars are young, very hot stars that formed relatively recently, a few million years, tens of millions of years, but they're much, much hotter stars than the sun. Now the other thing that you see here, you said those aren't the only stars, you really see millions of stars in this image. And that's one of the things that Galileo did. If you recall when we talked about that, Galileo turned his telescope towards the Milky Way. Well this is in the constellation of Scorpius. Our Milky Way happens to pass through Scorpius. And in fact the center is right next door in Sagittarius. This would be the center of our galaxy. So you're actually looking at the Milky Way galaxy here. So part of this band where you're seeing all these stars is actually the Milky Way galaxy. So if you go out camping in a very dark site at night and you see that band stretching across the sky, well here's what you'd see if you put a telescope onto it. And that's where Galileo picked out all these other stars that were not visible to the naked eye that could not be seen. All of a sudden there were a lot more stars that were visible when you looked towards the Milky Way. Finally you also see some darker areas. So you see some areas where there aren't quite so many stars. Pretty dark over here, no stars in this area. Pretty dark up to that corner, no stars there. Not true. There's lots of stars there. We just can't see them. They're hidden. What these dark areas are dust clouds. 
very diffuse dust clouds by earthly standards. You know, it's a dust particle here and a dust particle here and one here and one here. But when you add that up and make something that's light years inside, even if you've got particles scattered across, feet across, it eventually blocks out every, all the light coming from behind it. So these dust clouds, big again, very diffuse, you know, not like dust as you're used to thinking on Earth when dust builds up. Very diffuse particle here, particle there. But when you make something that's many light years across made of those few particles, it can block out all of the light coming from behind it. This should be, we're looking towards the center of the galaxy, this should be some of the brightest area in the sky if there was no such thing as dust in our galaxy. That would be the brightest place to look. And if you went out in the evening tonight, if it's clear, if it stays clear, it was nice and clear early this morning, but, and you look to the south, the center of our galaxy is pretty much straight to the south in the early evening right now, right after, after, after sunset. Sagittarius and Scorpius would be just off to the south. That should be the brightest area in the sky. It's not. Right? Even ignoring light pollution, it would be overwhelming if you could not have all this dust there that was blocking out all the light of these stars. If you instead turn a radio telescope there, put a radio telescope and point a radio telescope south, you'll see one of the brightest radio objects in the sky because radio waves come straight through that dust. They're not affected. Just as you know, radio waves come straight through the building and can get you here, whereas if you're in a room with no windows, the light waves aren't getting in, right? Visible light doesn't get through. It's all blocked out by the walls, but the radio waves still get right, still get right in. So the radio waves can actually penetrate through this and help us to study what's going on in these, in these clouds. And we'll look at that in a few weeks when we start talking about how stars form. We'll look deep into those clouds, deep, deep into those dust clouds, and see where the stars that will eventually become clusters like this are actually just starting to form. So little preview of what's coming up there. So a picture and a video for today. Questions? Questions? Otherwise we're going to go look at telescopes. Alrighty. And we'd gone through, we'd started on telescopes, but I'd just really given you the, I'd just really gone through the units and said a little bit about what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about optical telescopes. And most of the unit is on optical telescopes, so telescopes looking with visible light. Then we'll look at you know, what we learn about telescopes and general properties of the telescopes based on those, but those will be applicable to any of the other ones that we're going to study, including radio telescopes, ultraviolet telescopes, infrared telescopes, x-rays, gamma rays. So we can now look at astronomical objects. You can look at the sun in all sorts of different wavelengths. We can see what the sun looks like in gamma rays. We can see what the sun looks like in radio waves. And it tells us about very different things about the sun. So we learn a lot more about the sun or any other object by studying it at multiple wavelengths instead of just visible light. But what we're going to start off is looking at telescopes and we can form an image using a telescope two ways. We can use a mirror. That's the example shown here. It's a reflecting telescope. It reflects the light from the mirror to a focus. So rays from some distant object that you're pointing at way off there come in. They bounce off the the specially curved mirror of the telescope. And because it's curved, they all bounce back to a focal point, And that's where you want to observe. Now, that gives you one difficulty with the reflecting telescope. Part of the problem is you want to, you want to observe there. So you want to put your eye right there. And what are you going to do when you put your eye right there to observe? If I put my eye right there and stand in the way, 
I'm blocking a lot of the light. So we have to do different things with reflecting telescopes in order to be able to actually collect the light. We want to put our detector right there. So we want to put our camera. You want to put your eye to be able to see. You want to put it right there. That's not very efficient. If you're talking about a small telescope, you know, something that's eight inches across, and you put your head in there to block it, you're not going to see much. Right? If I put my head in an 8-inch telescope, I think my head's a little bigger than 8 inches. It's going to block out everything. So you're not going to see any light. But there are other ways of things that we can do that I'll show you in a little bit. Ways we can get the light from this point to another point where we can actually observe it safely and still be able to see the, still be able to use most of the mirror's surface. But this is one thing that you can use. One thing that you can use is a reflecting telescope which uses a mirror to focus the light. The other thing that we can do is use a lens. So other option you can do is get a lens. You know, glasses, binoculars, use things like this. And what you do is you have the light rays. Again, light rays are all off in the distance coming in. The lens is perfectly ground to the right shape to bend the light to a specific focal point. So the light goes straight through the lens and come straight down here and there's your focus so there's where you want to put your eye. There's where you want to put your camera. There's where you want to put your eye to be able to see the object. See the image of your object coming through. Looks a little bit easier that way, right? You've got to put your eye, you're looking straight through at your object. What the lens does is it bends the light and the little diagrams to the left are showing you the more sort of the way, the, how it's, depending on how it's shaped how that glass is shaped and the angle that it hits it, it bends it more and more so it actually sets to focus. The, it sets to focus the light. And that's the way like eyeglasses are set up in order to be bent just right to adjust the light coming into your eye to take care of you know, defects in your eye that don't focus the light properly to actually fix it and be able to focus them. Now looking at these two, we looked at a reflect, you saw a reflecting, just used a lens there. We'll look at more details of the specific telescopes coming up. Or a refracting telescope. The refracting makes the most sense very, very easy to make, very simple. These were the very first types of telescopes that were made. Galileo's telescopes used little tiny lenses, you know, maybe a centimeter across, so little teeny tiny lenses, but opened up the entire universe to something that's much bigger than what you can see with just your eye. These were the type that Galileo used. They're not really used much anymore. You see refracting telescopes sold. Some of them can still be reasonably good, but there has not been a professional refracting telescope made in over 100 years now. Last one was like in the late 1800s. So it's been a long time since a professional uh, telescope has been made that uses a lens. The, all the big telescopes I mentioned, you could have a mirror the size of this room. Well, it's a lot easier to build a mirror the size of this room and grind it to the right surface than it is to get a perfect lens. Imagine a lens the size of this room. How thick is that lens going to be? How heavy is it going to be? You can't have air bubbles in it. It's got to be perfect because the light has to go through it. Light doesn't have to go through the mirror. If you've got all sorts of air bubbles in it, who cares? Right? As long as the shape is the surface is right, it doesn't matter. It's, it'll work. The lens, you can't do that. Both sides have to be perfect. Not just one side of a mirror, but both sides have to be perfect. And again, you can't, if you have a whole bunch of air bubbles in it, that's going to distort your image. Plus, the big thing with them is if you can imagine trying to support me, think of a lens the size of this room. How thick is it going to be? How are you going to hold that up? You can't put anything behind it to hold it, right? You can only hold it right on those very thin edges. 
doesn't work doesn't work too well. So that's one of the reasons that all the big telescopes, heck, a mirror, I can stick all the I can stick all the support I want to behind it because it doesn't matter. You can put tons of equipment behind it to hold it up and keep it to the right shape. So one of the reasons that really lenses are not used much anymore in optical telescopes, or at least in professional ones. Now, one of the ways the image forms, this is sort of shown here if you look at the, if you're looking at a bigger image, something like a comet, you look at the light comes from the top of the source, the orange, orange line, so light coming there from the head of the comet. Notice how it focuses to the bottom. So light comes through, focuses down towards the bottom of the image. Light from here from the top focuses down here. So you'll actually form an image. It doesn't focus all the light. From a star it would focus everything right to the center. But from an object that has some size to it, it's actually going to make you an image there. Do note that the image is flipped upside down. So when you look through a telescope, if you've ever done this, if you've ever gone and looked at the moon in a telescope and then go look at it again, you do a double take because wait, everything's flipped because it's backwards. The, the astronomical telescopes naturally invert everything. If you take an astronomical telescope and instead of pointing it you know, at a star, try pointing it at a tree in the distance, everything's going to be flipped because it's all going to be upside down because of the way the telescope works. Now for astronomical purposes, does it really matter? You take a picture of the moon and it's upside down, all you got to do is flip it over. So it really doesn't matter. You could put other optics in to adjust that, you know, as you do with things like binoculars, where there's multiple, not just one lens, but multiple lenses in there to adjust it to get the image to come out right. Because if you're using binoculars, everything being upside down would really annoy you after a while when you're trying to observe, you know, a bird or whatever you're trying to look at. You know, it would, throw, it would, it would annoy you after a while. Telescope, it really doesn't matter. But you will notice that if you ever go and look at something big through a telescope and then go look up at the sky, especially like the moon, which stands out, you'll see that everything, it seems like everything's a little bit off. So here's looking at them in a little bit more detail. I showed you reflection and refraction. These are, here's how, more how we do the telescopes. On the right is a refracting telescope. And you can, these are ones, you, these are the cheapy ones that you can often buy. They'll sell, they're very quick and easy to make. You can buy these, you know, for 30, 40, 50, less than $100. They're usually not of great quality, those ones. But they're very easy to make. You just need a long tube and a couple of lenses and you can make a telescope. That's what Galileo made. So he actually ground lenses to fit here. Again, things that were about a centimeter across in terms of size. And focuses the light. Starlight comes straight in to a focus to an eyepiece which actually gathers the light and then magnifies the image for you to see. Now I mentioned with the reflecting telescopes. You can't really stick your head there. You can't just stick your head in front, especially if you're talking about a telescope that's relatively small. If I put my head in there to look, I'm going to block all the light and I'm not going to see much of anything. So what astronomers do, here's where the light wants to come to a focus. You put a little mirror in front of it that blocks out, the, that, that transfers that light and brings it out towards an eyepiece. There's a couple different ways to do this that I'll show you in a little bit. But in general, the process is the same, is that you're moving the focus to where you can actually see it. So you don't usually use the prime focus, certainly not in a smaller telescope. But actually you do in some very big telescopes. But in smaller telescopes, you don't. You bring the, eye, you bring the light out to the side where you can actually put your eye and observe comfortably and not, try to not be blocking all of the light that would come, from, that would come from it. 
But the idea between the two is really the same thing. You have some primary, something that's gathering all your light, which you call the primary mirror or a primary lens. You would have some kind of eyepiece. So some way to get that light as it's focused to the eyepiece. In the case of a refractor, it comes straight through. In the case of a reflector, you need extra. So you can see why those weren't the first ones built. You need extra equipment to be able to get that light to some place that's very easy. If Galileo had done his little one centimeter reflectors, they wouldn't have done him much good because there'd have been no way to actually observe the light. No, no way to get your head in front of a one centimeter. You'd have to have a really, really tiny head to get in front of that one centimeter telescope and not be able to not be blocking everything. Now, a couple reasons. I've gone through some of these already. But as I mentioned, modern telescopes are all reflectors. The largest refracting telescope is just about that lot, one meter, about a meter long, about a meter wide. It's a pretty good size. You think about that as a lens, that's a pretty good size piece of glass that you have to be able to support to do this. That was built back in the late 1800s, so a little over 100 years ago now. Now why, but why have we not built, we could certainly build a bigger one now. Our technology has improved a little bit since the late 1800s. You know, no cars at the time, computers, calculate, you know, cell phone, that was all not, we could certainly build a lot bigger one. Could we build one that's two meters long, wide now? Probably, the technology has improved drastically. But there are some other problems. One is that light traveling through a lens is bent differently depending on the wavelength. And when we looked at spectroscopy before, if you recall, you had, you were splitting up the light into the colors of a rainbow when you went through the lens. There is a prism. And if you have light coming in, you have some light bent more. So you might have the blue light here and the red light here. If you send light through a, right, send light through a prism, well, it splits it up into the colors of the rainbow. Well, really, what is a prism? except a great big lens, part of a great big lens. So you're going to do the same thing in a lens is going to do the same kind of thing. So when you send when you send light through this, you're going to have a have some the blue light that's going to focus more and you'll get a blue focus. You're going to have some light that didn't bend quite as much. That's the red focus. They're not in this. So where are you going to take your picture? Where are you going to look? Are you going to look at this? You'll see the blue light in focus, but the red will be all blurry. If you're going to look at the red, red will be all in focus, but the blue will be all blurry. So it causes a problem. Now I've exaggerated it. It's not quite that extreme. But if you've ever looked through a relatively inexpensive refracting telescope, you can look and you'll see either a blue or a red halo around any bright star. And you're seeing this effect. That only gets worse when astronomers are trying to measure things in detail. You know, we need to be able to have everything focus at the same point. So that's one problem. Second problem is that some of the light traveling through the lens is absorbed. So light doesn't, you know, if you have 100 photons going through here, maybe 98 come out, depending on the exact material. Maybe 100 go in, maybe 70 come out. Okay, if 100 go in and 90 came, 98 come out, that sounds pretty good, 98%. But when you are looking at the very faintest objects that astronomers are trying to see, you don't want to lose anything. 
You need every single photon you can possibly get. So having any absorption through there means that there's some objects that you're not going to be able to see. I mentioned this a little bit when we talked about those tele- talked about some of the large lenses. You got a big chunk of glass. It's going to be heavy. Okay, a large mirror is going to be heavy too. But a large lens, I can only support it around the edges. You know, if I needed real big thick glasses and you had to support them from behind, they're not going to help me a lot. Because you're putting the supports right behind where the light has to come through. So you can only hold that lens around the edges and it's a big heavy lens. A little lens like this, no big deal. You can do that very easily. When you're talking about a lens that's this big and I can only hold it on the edges, you know, a big circle this big and I'm trying to only hold it on the edges, it's going to be heavy under gravity and it's going to start to bow. It's going to distort its shape. It's no longer going to have the correct shape to focus the light. And finally, a lens needs to have two surfaces that are ground perfectly. You've got to ground the front front of it perfect to focus the light. You've got to grind the back of it perfect. If you make a mistake on one or the other, it's not going to focus light properly. With a mirror, you only have to grind one perfectly. So, you know, Hubble Space Telescope only has one mirror that it needs to, needs to grind right. Doesn't mean you got it right the first time. Their errors happen and they had to go back up and fix and they put, give the Hubble Telescope some uh, little lenses, glasses essentially, to focus the light because the mirror was just slightly ground to the wrong shape. So, two surfaces. Some of the reasons that we do not use really everything that's been built in a hundred and Almost 100 and what, 150, almost 115 years now has been a refracting telescope in terms of professional telescopes. Some smaller telescopes are still done using refractors. So here's some different types. I said there were different ways to focus the light. You have the prime focus. That's just focusing the light from the mirror straight back to where it wants to go. Nothing else involved. So you could put you could put an you could put an observ- observation there. You could look at the prime focus and be able to see your image, if your telescope is big enough. If you're talking about a telescope that is, you know, a few inches across, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to put anything small enough there to be able to see it. You're going to block everything by looking at it. When you're talking about a telescope that's the size of this room, putting a t- camera there to take a picture isn't going to hurt you. So some astronomers do use the prime focus as that involves the least amount of equipment. You don't need anything else. You don't need to reflect that light. You don't need to change the light in any other way. You get the most direct image. And in fact, with with the prime focus, with some of the larger telescopes, there there have actually been ones that actually had a cage up there. So an astronomer could actually ride at the prime focus. Uh, The big Mount Palomar 200-inch telescope is one that had that. So an astronomer could actually ride in a cage at the center and do, and do their observations. Everything's computer controlled nowadays, but 50 years ago they'd be able to ride there to do their, do their observations, to make their image, take their images, take their pictures directly at the prime focus. Now most of what we use nowadays uses a secondary mirror of some kind to refocus that light. So we have a couple different kinds. There's a Newtonian focus, which has an angled mirror that just sends the light out to the side. So you can look at it, you can look at it to the side. Works real well if you're observing the telescope, if you're observing with the telescope, if you're just trying to look through the telescope. That's a very convenient, you can have that at a nice easy level for an eye, for a person to be standing and look at look through it. So that works out real well. A lot of amateur telescopes, six, eight, ten inch telescopes are real good and use this can use this type of method. Another one 
This is the Cassegrain telescope. Actually cuts a hole in the mirror, the main mirror. Uses a flat telescope, flat secondary mirror, and reflects the light straight back down through the hole. Now that hole doesn't affect anything because if you think about it, this, this mirror is blocking out that light that would have gotten there anyway. Just as the little part of this mirror, is the center part of that mirror really isn't useful because you've got that little mirror in there that's blocking some of the light. So Cassegrains are nice, again, for some of the telescopes. They're nice if you're doing um, astrophotography. If you're taking pictures, if you're attaching a camera, it's easier to attach the camera here because you're keeping all the weight balanced in one spot. Whereas if you put a nice big heavy camera on the Newtonian, you're tending for heavy instruments there, you're tending to put extra forces on the telescope and tilt it and try to move it. So it's much easier to do some kind of instruments are much better done at the Cassegrain focus down here because you're putting all the weight together and it balances the telescope a little bit better. Another one that's used is the Coudet focus off to the right, which actually looks a little bit like a Newtonian, looks like a combination of the two, where you bring the light down and you bring it here. But in this case, your instrument is not even attached. So you don't even attach an instrument to this. You actually send your light out to your instrument room. So the light is actually focused, sent out through the hole there, and goes directly to the instrument room from there and then is observed. That works for very, very heavy astronomical, you know, professional astronomical instruments that could not even be attached to the telescope to observe them. Some of the equipment can be very, very large. This is a way to get the light to that, to get the light to that directly. So those are a couple of different ways that you can observe with a reflecting telescope. With a refracting, it's pretty much all the same. Your light is going straight through the telescope. Here's an example of one of the telescopes. This is the Keck telescopes. And you get an idea of how large they are. You can see there, if you can see there is a person in that top inset image. There's actually a person standing there in the middle to give you an idea of how this is done. Now this is one that's done, it's actually put together. It's multiple mirrors. It's not just one single giant mirror. It's tough to build a gigantic mirror, something that's 10, 12 meters across, is very difficult to do. So one of the things that astronomers have done is built smaller mirrors, lots of little mirrors, and put them together. If you put a bunch of little hexagonal mirrors, they honeycomb together real nice. And you can make a very big mirror a lot easier than you can make one gigantic mirror of the same size. But you'll see a lot of what we talked about is here. You have incoming light coming in reflecting off the mirrors, back to a prime focus could be up here. If you use the secondary mirrors, it can go down to, straight down to here, straight down through the middle. There's the opening that would be in the middle. That would go down to the Cassegrain focus. You could use a third mirror, so one, two, reflect light out this way to the Coudet focus. So off to heavier instruments, it's not attached to the physical telescope itself. So secondary mirror, third mirror, a bunch of different mirrors. One thing you do notice on this, if you've ever seen telescopes, if you've seen, you know, if you have a friend with a little telescope, they're always enclosed. Professional telescopes are not enclosed. They're wide open. There is no, this is just, you know, wires and beams that are holding the, the structures together, but there's actually nothing covering that. So in a professional telescope, that would be wide open. So telescopes are put in areas where there's not a, light, a lot of light pollution. If we tried to take a telescope like that out here, you know, to the field, you know, you've got too much stray light coming in. You're going to have light coming from every direction and 
reflecting here and make it too bright, you're not going to see a thing because you've got too much stray light coming in. For a professional telescope put out in a very dark site, that doesn't matter and it makes it a lot lighter. It's a lot cheaper to build because you don't need all of this extra metal structure to protect and cover the telescope. Now that's the Keck. Let me see. Okay. Now this is the sort of the image, imaging, and everybody's familiar with these nowadays, right? CCDs, charge coupled devices, they're all over the place, right? In your cameras, digital cameras, cell phones, all use this kind of instrument to be able to take an image. Old plastic film is pretty much out now. You don't really use, don't use that. Everything is done, done electronically. Astronomers were among the earlier ones to begin using this type of technology just because it is so much easier, so much more convenient to be able to get digital images of an object than it is to have you know, a specific piece of film that you have to worry about damage, damage to, has to be stored properly, and to keep it for many years. Whereas you know, this, once you have a digital image and it's on the computer, you can share it with the world. So much more convenient. But what a CCD is, and you get a close-up of it there in image A, is just all these different tiny little light sensitive areas that really just count how many photons hit them. And that's all it does. It's all the CCD in your camera or your cell phone does is count. It has a whole bunch of these, you know, how many pixels does it have? You know, how many megapixels? Well, how many millions of those little things does it have? How many little sections does it have? That's what that means. So how many does it have? That's how, that's how much detail you're going to get. So the more pixels you have, the better a resolution you're going to get. And really each one of those just counts. Well, we had one, you got one hit, two hit, three hits, no hits, nine. Where, do, where, are, you getting more, where are you getting the most hits? And that gives you essentially your image. You just count up where they are and you can convert that from a digital set of numbers into a pictorial representation. And again, that's what goes on in your camera when you take a picture. It does the same type of thing. It's this little device like this that's just counted how, many, how much of the light comes from each, little, each of those little segments and converts it into an image. If you do certain processing with different filters, which they do, you can actually convert. This is naturally a black and white image. That's what a CCD is measuring. It's either measuring how many you got hit. It's not talking about colors. All it's talking about is how many strikes you got of, of energy. If you do different kinds of filters and look at different lights, then you can convert that into a color image. So we're going to continue, yeah, I'm butt set. We're going to continue on telescopes next time. We should be through most, if not all, of telescopes we'll have gotten, we'll get through on, on Friday, as well as lab time. So. And I do have labs graded. Grades are up, and I'll give those back on Friday. I wanted to make sure I got the exams back today. So have a good rest of the week.